Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. hope you can find a handout. Uh, it, it bothers me to make a bunch of copies and throw some away at the end of the day, so uh, hopefully you can find one. And if you do want to get on my little email, I'll send you the digital copy if you prefer to have them, and have them that way. But for the record, this is October 1st. We're doing Lesson 5 of Ecclesiastes. It's good to see Pastor Justin back among us, brother. Glad to, which, which is a good sign. It means his mother's doing much better, so we're thankful for all of that. It's good to, good to see you. <clears throat> well, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going to look at this uh, poem uh, to begin, um, let's pray first as we begin. Our Father, we thank you for gathering us together again today. How we bless you and praise you for uh, your word that you've left for us. We may know uh, know you through it, but we may know your your way and that that your way with us as your people. And I thank you for the uh, the blessing of gathering together as your people to read your word and study your word and now we pray that you would cause it to run swiftly and powerfully through our hearts and may may your word find our hearts to be fertile soil because we desire that we would know the fruitfulness of your word to conform us uh, to be like our lord jesus christ and we pray that today that even as we study this old testament passage that we would see him here that we would see more of his majesty and beauty and his love that we may love him and love you and we thank you in jesus name amen <clears throat> so this poem verses one through eight is not a standalone uh, piece of literature uh, it often is is uh, seen that way but it sets up the rest of the chapter so the the poem is really important um, this may date some of us, but uh, does anybody remember the song, Turn, Turn, Turn? Uh, who made that famous, Cheyenne? Uh, you, you're not that old, are you? Okay. Roger McGuinn, oh. the birds. The birds, yeah. Okay. Spelled B-Y-R-D-S. Uh, Peter Singer uh, wrote, well, he didn't write it. Uh, Solomon wrote it, but he took it and put it into a, into a musical form and and uh, the birds and other people. I think Peter, Paul, and Mary may have sung it, too. Well, I listened to it this morning while I was looking at my, uh, my morning glories, and uh, I thought I might play it for you, but then I realized what happened to me was I got that silly, well, it's not, there's nothing wrong with the song because it's just the Bible, you know, but it kind of ends up in an unusual way, but uh, I didn't want you to be stuck with the tune like I am now. Uh, <laughs> But I did listen to uh, to some Pandora music, so I've got it out of my mind, and we're gonna we're gonna run it away there in the, in this worship service too. But anyway, interesting how popular that song became. I, I did a little research on Peter Singer. Um, he just died a few years ago at the age of 95. He was a uh, let's see, I, I didn't want to do a lot of research on him, but I didn't want to take the time to. 
he was a folk singer, uh, legendary in the folk movement. He was a civil rights activist, an environmentalist. For a while, he was a member of the Communist Party. And he did uh, both sit-ins and things like that during the, during the 50s and 60s. And then he put together this, uh, this song, and, the, and the, the, uh, the birds picked it up, and others, others did. It was one of the most popular songs on uh, United Air Forces radio during the Vietnam War. In fact, he, the, the song ends with, a, with an appeal for peace, which is not part of the, the text here. But the point is that uh, this, uh, this poem, uh, if you notice, as you maybe see in your notes, it's kind of like the book of Esther. The name of God is not mentioned in the, in the poem. But his fingerprints are all over it, because you can't read it as, you know, as a believer and not see that he's behind the whole thing. But uh, so this, so this poem and song has been used in atheist uh, funerals and in believers' funerals and other places too. So it's got a wide, uh, a wide berth. But it's important that as we read it, um, that we realize it's, it it sets up another problem for the preacher for Koheleth, and he's going to give his answer to the problem in two ways in the rest of the chapter. So I want to just read it to you. I'd like for somebody else to read it, but I think I will, so it'll be on the, on the uh, recording. Uh, but just notice it. Just notice as, as I read it. But maybe just a couple of more observations. You can see this is a marismus. A marismus is a, is a literary device that takes two polar opposites and then um, includes everything in between. So life and death, happiness and sadness and everything in between, which is another way of just showing, uh, well, there are, there's 28 of these words, so there's 14 pairs of 28, and so that's multiples of seven. And Pastor Justin has very clearly reminded us how seven is an important biblical number, the number of completion. So another way of, of saying that this, that this poem uh, encompasses, is intended to encompass the whole completion of life, I mean the whole, the whole experience of, of life. There's some things positive, some things negative, some things are not particularly um, right or wrong. Uh, well, let me read it and then we'll look at a few more ideas there before we move on. So this is Ecclesiastes 3, beginning with verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So, um, 
The only one of these that is absolutely determinative is um, the first one, a time to be born and a time to die. Uh, everything else uh, doesn't describe things that we should do, it just describes things that happen to us in life. But the first one we can't do anything about. We have no, we have no say in the first one. We have no say in the time that we are born and no say in the time that, that we die. And uh, so what, what this does is sets up the framework for the, everything else that's in this, in this poem because, well, you've probably walked through a, uh, a graveyard and every, grave, every gravestone that has somebody below it has two dates on it, doesn't it? And it reflects this, uh, the truth of this passage here. So, but, but notice you see the, the date of birth, I think you look this, you see the date of the birth, you see the date of the death, and what's between them? Dash. A little dash. Uh, it's a little dash. And that's a good thing for us to remember too, but, but the little dash is verses three through eight. These are the things that happen to us. Now every single thing may not happen to every, uh, every person, uh, but most of these things, they happen, they happen to us. Uh, do you see any order in the way these things are, are listed? Well, you're right, there is no order to it. Um, at least all the Hebrew scholars and everybody I looked at, everybody says there's, there's no order, the Hebrew language doesn't imply any order, except the first one, uh, time to be born and the time to die. But everything else is very random. And um, the point is that, that the randomness of the poem is part of its message, that this is how life is. It's just random. You don't know when these things are going to happen. You may have sadness one day and happiness another day. You may embrace one day and refrain from embracing another day. So the form of the poem is part of its message to us. And this is what begins to get the attention of Solomon now. Um, and that is, you have no control over when these things happen. These things happen, uh, happen to us. Um, like David Gibson said, uh, you can't put this on your calendar. You can't say, well, let's see, tomorrow's October 2nd. I think I'll, that'll be a time I will cast away stones. And, uh, and then maybe on Friday I'll, I'll schedule some time uh, uh, to, to uh, sew. And then on the next Friday or 2 o'clock I'm going to see. You know, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? You can't do that. If you try to, you'll, you either are crazy or you'll go crazy. You, you can't do it. And that was part of Solomon's problem. He thought as king he could control and recreate Eden for himself as the king. And, and this is part of the problem that he's setting up here for us to uh, to understand. Um, another point that, that David Gibson pointed out is that most of these involve relationships with people. Even a, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Um, whatever they may be, a time to weep and a time to laugh, they imply a relationship with people. That's why you have these, uh, these emotions. 
And when you think about it, that makes these these um, experiences even more unpredictable. Not all, not only do they have this sense of chance, or they look like a sense of chance, but when they involve other people, and that and that involves even more unpredictability and increases the uh, the difficulty uh, that is part of them. So my last note there under this section is uh, you've probably heard this uh, this illustration and I think it really does well as we think about this chapter to use this illustration of the tapestry that uh, we see the bottom of the tapestry what, what what do you see on the bottom of the tapestry you see just yeah you just see a bunch of strings hanging down different colors and and um, but but what do you see on the top of the tapestry? You see a design or you see a painting, you see something that has order, an order to it. And so the point here, as I think I quoted uh, Doug Wilson, we live out our lives under the loom and everything we see is vanity. Um, so somebody else, is, somebody else is running the loom, is doing the warp and the woof to make it work, and, but we can't see it. He's gonna un unpack this in a few minutes. Uh, let's just look at this, at this point here, a couple of places, like back in Proverbs 16. If you'd like to look there with me. Proverbs 16. of the heart belong to man but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord and then verse 9 and this gets to the literally to the heart of the of the concern that Solomon had the heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps and then one more uh, Psalm 33 verses 10 and 11 the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing he frustrates the plans of the peoples the counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generations and so just to realize the again the uh, uh, the tapestry that uh, interestingly we can't we, we cannot only not understand our own lives and where they're going and why things work and don't work and why these uh, 22 things come to us and come at us. Um, so we can't eat, we can't make that figure out how that works. But God is not only guiding the uh, the flow and the, the end of our lives where our lives are going, but He's also doing that and He's done that for billions of people and over thousands of years. And so that ought to humble us, shouldn't it, folks, that not only can we not understand what he's doing with us, but he's doing a whole lot bigger thing. I mean, that, we can't even find words that describe what God is doing. Um, and that's what sets up this, uh, this problem. It frustrates 
Solomon in, in this part of his discovery, it, uh, it, it again frustrates his life because he wants to control things and make sense of, of things. Uh, he couldn't do that earlier in chapter 2 when he finally came to a resolution about it. And now he can't do it here. So he's going to ask this question in verse 9. Verse 9 is what the Bible scholars call the programmatic question. And this is the third time it's repeated. And this is the question that defines uh, the, the, uh, uh, the lesson of the book of Ecclesiastes. So verse 9 is, what gain has the worker uh, from this toil? So he's asked it. He's asked it twice already. Uh, just look back. It, it's the beginning question in chapter 1, verse uh, 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then he, he asked it again in, in 2.22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? So he's asked it, he's asked it at the beginning to, to frame the whole book, and he's asked it after his first, uh, uh, his, his first investigation, and he, he's frustrated by, the, by what he learned because uh, death frustrates him because it ends everything. And so he's, he asked the question there, what, so what do you gain if you work all your life and then you die? And now he's asking it uh, with reference in, in regard to time. Now, I haven't studied the whole book, but I have an idea that what he's, what he's doing is adding, uh, he's adding understanding to the answer to this question. Now, what's the point? Why, you know, why do we toil? Is there any meaning to it? So now he's going to answer this question. As uh, somebody said, the poem sets up the answer uh, to, that, that Solomon will give us in the prose that he writes uh, in chapter 3 after this. Um, and then verse 10, he repeats this lamentation. And I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And he's already, he's already made that, uh, that observation also. That for him, since he hadn't resolved, he hadn't given us his answer yet, but for him, uh, this, is a, this is an added dimension of frustration he has because God requires us to live under this um, under this cycle of time and this cycle of events that take place in time. Now, in verse 11, he begins to, um, uh, to help us to understand what he believes is a good answer to the problem. There's Wyatt. Babies cry and babies sleep. <laughs> and you can't control when they do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, verse 11 is, a, uh, is an amazing verse of Scripture. So let's try to unpack it a little bit. Um, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity... Oops. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning. So, um, here's the beginning of Solomon's answer to this. And notice, uh, he has made everything beautiful in, uh, in, his in its time. So he's, 
he's definitely referring back to this poem. He's trying to give some explanation of what, uh, what is the answer to the dilemma he has about living under time and the randomness of it and the lack of control that he has. And so he becomes theologically correct that God has made everything beautiful in his time. You can see uh, uh, my quote from somebody from Provon. The problem facing the human actor is that there is another actor whose actions are decisive ones. So what a beautiful statement. He has made, every, he has made everything beautiful. And this is a reference back to the creation. Remember what God said after everything he did, he made night and day or the animals or whatever, and at the end he always said, it is, it is good. And then when he made man in his image, it is, it is very good. And so I think Solomon's picking up on that. Uh, but it's beautiful in its time, but beautiful according to who? It's beautiful according to what, what God sees. Now, of course, it doesn't always look beautiful to us. We, we have these things happening to us, and we just see the strings hanging down from the, um, from the tapestry. But in God's understanding, everything is beautiful in this time. Uh, some of you were with me as we worked, uh, we studied in the book of Proverbs, and we talked about this idea of beauty, uh, how wisdom is beautiful. And maybe you remember, I had to re refresh my memory, that uh, biblically, the idea of beauty is not only aesthetic uh, attractiveness, something looks beautiful to the eyes, but it's the idea of, of fittingness. And what is beautiful is fitting. That is, it accomplishes the purpose for which uh, it was ordained. So, uh, in this a beautiful uh, recorder here, well, you may not think it's very beautiful it's, uh, aesthetically, but it's beautiful because it accomplishes uh, what, uh, what it's been designed to do. And so think about that uh, in your own life and in my life, that, that as we see these individual strands hanging down that don't make sense to us, but in God's mind, those things are beautiful. And because in his mind, seeing the big picture that he's, that he's painting or the big story that he's writing, um, it is fitting. It is accomplishing a purpose for which he has ordained the things in our lives. So, uh, so Solomon would say, well, that's great, but how do we know that? How can we understand that? In the next verse, I mean, the next, the, the next statement says it. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. What in the world does that mean? Anybody have a really succinct answer to help us? What does it mean that God has put eternity into man's heart? That there's more than just here. Okay. Elaine said that there's more than just here. You mean in Wiley or? <laughs> our lives. Okay, our lives in, in, the, in the scope of time. Isn't it? That's right, that's good. I don't know how you can beat that, but maybe you have something else you'd like to add. Um, so I have that note there. He has given man a sense of a larger picture uh, that events in time have an origin and an end. So so we see time, and, and you know we had the date of birth, the date of death, and the little dash in between, which represents time. 
Uh, that's all we know right now. All we know is the, the little dash and what happens. But, but he's put into our hearts, uh, as Elaine so correctly said, that we know that there's something more. There's something more outside of time. There's something more than us looking at the little strings hanging down from the tapestry. Um, it, it really kind of makes me think of Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul says there's things everyone knows, I mean, particularly about God and about his attributes. Now, we can, uh, we can suppress those things, but if we don't, we can't not know that, that we know that there's something more uh, because God has put eternity into our hearts. He's made us aware that there's a bigger, there's an eternal picture besides just what takes place uh, in, the, uh, in time. And then he makes this uh, statement, and all the Hebrew guys that I looked at said um, there's a better way to translate yes, so that. And it should, you can see my note there. Uh, so he has put eternity in man's heart, but still man cannot find out what God has done. So we, not only can we not understand what God is doing in our lives, but as I said, we don't understand even I mean, we, you, don't, you don't even understand your own life by the person sitting next to you. But think about the billions of people that God is weaving this tapestry together to accomplish uh, his purposes. And let's remember that um, these, these 28 things in, in the poem, they, uh, most of them describe the condition of living in a fallen world in a post-Eden post world. So I thought it might be helpful to just think for just a few moments. Uh, uh, remember the four the four stages of the of the, what they call the meta narrative, the big uh, the big picture, the big story. Um, and you can probably help me with this. Uh, first starts in Genesis. What's the first stage? The first chapter of the story. Creation, Creation and then fall, and what do you call the the next one? Uh, redemption, is that a good good one? And then the last one is um, what consummation, restoration, what Justin, what do we what do we like to use there? Either one of those, okay? Okay. Uh, so think about just think about your Bible for just a minute. Um, so creation is in the first couple of pages. The fall is recorded in the next page. And then uh, the uh, restoration and consummation is in the book of Revelation. You could even go all the way back to like chapter 21 or 22. And uh, everything else in the Bible describes um, the redemption, how God is putting this all back together. Um, so that's where we are right now. We're in the redemption phase. Now there is the now and not yet. Of course, already uh, through Christ, He has redeemed us and He's made us His own, and, and, and He sits as the on the throne of the universe. But then there's that not yet. We we do not yet see all the consummation and restoration put together. So we are in that. We are in that phase uh, that we would call our redemption. And so let me. Uh, about the Ecclesiastes. So when he says, 
Um, he has put eternity into man's heart. But still, man cannot find out what God has done. So even though we can't see today how the pieces of our lives fit together, uh, we know from the New Covenant and the, the promises throughout the Bible, but we know that God is in the process of making all these things fit together for redemption, the full redemption of our lives, for the full redemption of the world. And that's the process uh, that we're in now. He's working after the purpose of His will to accomplish uh, His purposes uh, for His glory. So, the first conclusion that He comes, notice verse 12, um, I perceived or I, I saw, and then notice in verse 14, I perceived and I saw uh, what God uh, what God endures forever. So he's got two conclusions that he wants to give to us. When he's thought about uh, all the randomness of time and how we can't control it and how it just comes at us, he's beginning to get some theological understanding about how God plays a part in this. In verse 12, um, he, get, he repeats what now he's seen before. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. So he's already given that conclusion before when he thought about death and um, about when you die, some fool may get your stuff. And that was frustrating to him. But he came to this conclusion then that the point is not trying to store up stuff and, and uh, control life so that you can get what you want at the end of life because you're going to die. Anyway, the, the, uh, the, um, um, the solution, the, um, um, the way to look at this is like uh, I think David Gibson said, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, um, but that's all there is. Remember he said, no, the biblical perspective is eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is. That's what God has given us. So, so the point is uh, not to try to figure out everything that God has done but when we see the tassels hanging down, but to take each event that God allows to come our way and see it as from His hand and then find, uh, find pleasure and joy and appreciation in each one of those things. Uh, he does add something that he hadn't had before, and that is do good as long as you live. And I think that he's adding this moral dimension, not only enjoy what God is doing in each moment of life through a meal or through, uh, through your opportunity to work, but he says because of that, then act in accordance uh, to God's law as he acts, as he works, we're to cooperate with him. Um, in living under his sovereignty according to his law. Well then, verses, verses 14 to 15 is his second conclusion where he says, I perceived, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people uh, fear before him. So notice his, notice his reference to a time again. We have to live right here within time. We can't live anywhere else. But God lives in time and outside of time. And that gives him an encouragement 
that he's not that he's not stuck in this in this random uh, life uh, that's that's bound by time, because uh, what God does uh, endures uh, forever. And then notice this. Um, I was thinking about our, our children's Sunday school literature. The name of our new children's Sunday school literature is The Biggest Story. And um, now God is writing our story. We're writing a little piece of it. But God's the main author. He's writing our story. But our story is just a little tiny part of the biggest story. And that's going to, that involves God's oversight even in uh, to eternity. But look at. Uh, Verse 15, I think it's really an amazing verse. He's still answering this, this question, and he's, he's beginning, I think, when we go to verses, eight, uh, verses 16 through 22, he's going to express a concern that he has because as he looks at the world, it doesn't seem to be functioning the way a good God would make the world function. So he's thinking now about, well, what about all the things that aren't going like they're supposed to? What about all the things in the world that we don't like or the things in my own life? Uh, unfinished business or, or unresolved conflicts or whatever they may be. So look at uh, verse 15. That which is already has been. And that which is to be already has been. That refers back to chapter 1. But look at this last uh, phrase. God seeks what has been driven away. Now, the ESV note has God seeks what has been pursued. Maybe your version has, uh, let's see, Justin, you read from the Net Bible. Uh, James, do you have the Net Bible? I don't have any ESV, sorry. Okay, all right. I do. Okay, what do, what do they say? I hope it goes with what I want to say. Which verse? The very last phrase of verse uh, 15. God seeks what has been driven away. For God will seek to do again what has occurred in the past. Okay. I can fit that into what I want to say. <laughs> NIV says it differently. Okay. What does it say, Pi? Uh, it's kind of like what she read, but and God will call the past to account. Okay, God will call the past to account. New King James says, and God requires an account of what is past. Okay, God requires an account of what is past. That's good. Okay, I'm going to go with these two. Uh, two. <laughs> well, uh, and if it helps, it says in the Reformed ESV, it says the sense of the verb here probably refers to the past, but the meaning of this last line in the verse is not clear. Yeah, good. Well, that, so we don't know, and the Hebrew scholars don't know. But here's, but listen to this. I saw this in two or three two or three uh, uh, commentaries that this may reflect the imagery of uh, shepherding, the way a shepherding, like with, with sheep, the way a shepherd goes after a sheep that has wandered away and brings it back to the fold, to bring it back where it's supposed to be. So two thoughts for you as we, and really I think this verse is a transition to the next section that he wants to give to us. One, uh, God goes, God gathers all the events in time and brings them to evaluation, to judgment. Nothing happens that does not come under the, the uh, judgment and the evaluation of God. Everything's going to be set right. 
there will be, there, it may not look like justice today, and maybe there's not, but one day every act will be judged and evaluated by God, and justice will prevail. But I like this other one here. We'll see this again, but I just can't wait to, to, to tell it to you. I think it also, well, I don't, I've read this, and it meant a lot to me, that also it can mean personally that God knows all the random, unresolved events of our life. And uh, I had a couple yesterday. Maybe you've had some of those. You know, you, where's that going? Or why can't I get that packaged up? And, or maybe something wrong has happened. Or, or maybe because of our sins. Uh, we think about the sins of our youth. What is God going to do with, with that? But maybe an application of this verse. I just made this statement. But also, it means that He retrieves all the random, unresolved, troubling events of our lives and redeems them and resolves them. And I thought, uh, as I read that, I thought about uh, Revelation 21. Uh, and we, we won't go to it, but it was really interesting to me as I read that, even this morning. That's the, the passage, he, he will dry up every tear. And then he lists about four or five things that he'll do away with. Uh, mourning and death and... Justin, you preached on that a couple of months ago. but. Most of those things are in these, uh, in these, in, in this point. So he's going to resolve all of the unfinished stuff or things that didn't go right. One day he's going to resolve all of that and make it right. Okay, let's let's get on to the uh, to this last uh, <coughs> section here. So now he sees a problem. And um, notice that little word in, in verse uh, 16, moreover, means I saw something else. There's some, when, when I thought about time and observed the random events that I can't understand in time, I thought about something else. And this is what he thought. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said, so that was his problem. And that's the perennial problem, isn't it, with all of us and with all of time. You know, why does a good God let bad things happen? Uh, in fact, this was uh, Jeff's sermon a couple weeks ago was on Psalm 73, and he worked with that same problem, the, you know, the consternation of the psalmist, why evil people were able to live wonderful, happy lives and not be judged, and then he realized that one day that would, uh, that would happen. Um, this does not reflect God's he's saying this as he observed this in life this doesn't reflect God's sovereignty order and goodness in the progress of time uh, and then I just mentioned the delayed justice was a perpetual issue in Israel and it is for all of our for all of our concerns so how does he resolve this problem of injustice and that is that God will bring justice and judgment. It is interesting I, I did read this in a couple of Hebrew scholars, the way the Hebrew would read uh, in the place of, in verse 16 in the place of justice there was wickedness, in the place of righteousness there was uh, even, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart God will judge the righteous so they picked out uh, there was wickedness, there was wickedness, but God will judge and so the point is, as I made in my note there, uh, God has the final word in this. And that gave great comfort to the, 
out of Solomon as he dealt with that. So in, um, as we read in 3.1 at the beginning of the poem, everything, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And so in the same way that there's that under this time constraint that ran in what appears to be randomness, there's a season for everything. In God's economy, there will be a time when everything will be set right. There is a time for everything, including the judgment of God. It should not be thought that God's inactivity in respect to wickedness signifies a concession of sovereignty to wickedness. God will, at the right time, uh, bring justice. And then he does this unusual thing. He brings death back in. Have you noticed that death is his, kind of his favorite topic? He just keeps coming back to it. He always has a purpose for it. And uh, usually it is to show our creatureliness, or the limitations of our creatureliness, creatureliness. Uh, as uh, Doug Wilson said, uh, at the end of the tether, we have a strong tether that tethers us, that we can't get away from the limitations that we have. And death is the great period, the great exclamation point at the end of that, end of that sentence. So he's going to do something that's a little bit unusual. I don't have a lot to say to you about it, but he talks about death again. Um, so verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, that is, to the descendants of Adam, and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and, and to the dust uh, return. So he has all these, these alls that God, that God, I mean, that humankind and beast have all this, in common, um, I think I might have lifted it. Anyway, it's a whole bunch of alls. They, we all we, we have this in common, and the, the point of the text here is that he wants to use death again to show us our creaturely limitations. That in many ways we're just like uh, just like the animals uh, that we die. Now, verse twenty-one. He, he seems to give a little bit of an idea that we're not exactly like the animals because in verse 21, who knows? By the way, he uses this idea of who knows kind of an, an agnosticism. I'm not sure, but you know, who knows? Maybe this is the, the case. Um, verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? And so he's just stating the possibility uh, that there is a difference. He knows there's a difference, but he's trying to uh, draw us into the into the process that uh, when the beast dies, both the beast's body and spirit, or the spiritual part, is buried into the ground. But when a person dies, he says his spirit goes up, implying that his spirit goes up to the Lord and his body goes down. Um, he makes that real clear at the end of the at the end of the book in 12, 7, he says, and dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So he understands that, but he's trying to help us to, uh, to join him in this, in this search. So now in verse 22, 
in the first part of the verse. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. And so he just, he, he just repeats this. Uh, now he's asked this question based on his consternation about the, the um, randomness of time and the uncontrollableness of it. And he comes up to the same conclusion. So in this life, even with the mysterious cycle and randomness of events in time, um, he would say, carpe diem, seize the day. Don't worry about trying to make it all figure out. God's going to take care of that in this right time. No, he's weaving the tapestry that, that is a beautiful picture uh, for the universe and for you. But enjoy the moments and the privileges. Enjoy the moments of, of eating and drinking and thanking God for them, recognizing they're a gift from him. And that joy uh, is the gift in itself. That's what God provides for us. Now, I want to uh, uh, quote David Gibson in his book, uh, Living Life Backward. Um, he sees uh, that in this chapter there's, there's both comfort and, um, and a challenge. And I'll just read these to you real, real quickly as we, as we finish up here. I'm quoting him. I didn't give a footnote for every quote, but it, down at the bottom I gave you the... the, the, the um, um, the pages where they are. So he talks about uh, how parents uh, guide their children with rules and disciplines and uh, and plans because uh, they because parents know what their children need. Uh, uh, well, why it's gone? I guess he knew what he needed, but anyway, because uh, children don't know. And they don't understand a lot of times why parents do certain things uh, to, to parent them. Uh, but if they love their parents and they trust their parents and they know their parents love, love them, uh, they will trust their parents and leave into their hands uh, the plans that they make. And of course, he's saying that the same uh, to us. And he makes this statement, this means that part of growing up in the world is learning to grow, is learning to grow small. And doesn't that remind you of the Lord Jesus? How often he said, uh, come as little children. And uh, more in the whole uh, um, Sermon on the Mount, how often he refers to God as our Father and how we can trust our Father. So there's comfort that God is weaving uh, our story and we can trust him to do that. We may not understand all the strings that hang down that become beautiful in his time, but we can trust him to do that. And then, uh, death is a comfort for those who are in Christ because God, through his judgment, will make beautiful all the unresolved threads in my life. And that's where I, where I thought about um, Revelation 21, 4. He will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more, neither mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the King, and I'll make all things new. So, um, Knowing that death is coming is a comfort to us. And that sounds uh, like that doesn't fit the right way, does it? Because we've we all been to funerals of loved ones. But even though death is a stark reminder of our creatureliness, it also is a reminder that God is going to bring everything uh, to the right conclusion. And then a challenge, knowing that God is outside of time and sees it all, sees it all and will in the end bring judgment both 
uh, the righteous and the wicked, it stops me from needing to be in control of everything uh, that happens to me. So in that beautiful life, we can rest in God's providence. Uh, not that everything that happens to us is good, and it doesn't mean that we don't lament and, and, and sorrow over, over evil, and over evil in our lives, and over evil things that may happen uh, to us. But we can rest in God's providence that even though it may not be happening today, there is a day in the future because God is outside of time and sees everything that we can trust in His providence to make it right. And then, uh, finally, Ecclesiastes tells us to learn now, today, that there really is a time for everything. Uh, learning now that the season or seasons I am in will not always be the season of my life can at least help me prepare for the chapters of my life that God has yet to write. And um, give some quotes of a fellow named Zach, Zach Eswine. And he, uh, he says, Time in God's hands uh, graciously apprentices us. As we go through life and we, we live these 28, or maybe most of these 28 events in the, in the poem, uh, it is a gift to us because we realize that, that these things come and go. There's a time for every one of them. And so the present situation we're in uh, is not going to last forever. And we know that different things are coming in the future. And so it prepares us for them that they come. And that we're not surprised by them that they, that they come. That God is, is uh, doing His weaving, His warping woof. He's weaving a beautiful story. And we don't understand it, but we can, uh, we can rest in His providence that good things, uh, that different things are coming. And when they do come, we're not surprised, not surprised by that. Well, I think our time is, is gone, so next week we'll look forward to chapter 4. Thank you.